Welcome to Present Value. I'm your host, Elizabeth Potts. Sumitra Dutta is a professor here at the Cornell Johnson College of Business, as well as a thought leader in the artificial intelligence and innovation spaces. To give you some more context around today's guest and the episode, I'm delighted to be here with Brandon Carnell. Sumitra Dutta is a professor of management and the former founding dean of the Cornell Johnson College of Business. Prior to joining Cornell in 2012, he was on the faculty of INSEAD, a leading international business school with campuses in France and Singapore. Professor Dutta is an authority on innovation, providing a global perspective. Throughout his career, he has focused on how to drive business innovation and growth through the right combination of innovative people and technology. He is the co-editor and author of the Global Information Technology Report, published by the World Economic Forum, and the Global Innovation Index, published by the World Intellectual Property Organization, two influential reports in technology and innovation policy. In addition to sitting on numerous boards, Professor Dutta has published numerous papers and books, including Entrepreneurship and the Finance of Innovation in Emerging Markets, and Ask, Measure, Learn, using social media analytics to understand and influence customer behavior. Professor Dutta, thank you so much for joining us on Present Value. Before we jump into more detailed questions on your research, I want to start with more of a high level. So you studied AI at Berkeley while you were getting your PhD. What initially drew you to this area of study? Well, by the way, thank you for inviting me on Present Value. I'm very pleased and honored to be part of this group. You know, when I was in Berkeley, obviously, when you are in your PhD program, you try to look for topics that you think will have the biggest impact in your field in the future. Back then, I did my PhD in the second half of the 80s. Back then, AI was a rage. AI has gone through hype cycles. The first one was, of course, in the 60s when there was a lot of hype around AI, but that died out. The second was when I was on 80s. So I was, you know, I joined the PhD program when the AI, second AI hype cycle was at its peak. And there was a lot of excitement around what could happen with AI and all the different things that could enable in the future. A little bit like what we are seeing right now today happen at a different time. And so I thought it was exciting to do some research and spend some time working in an area which might change our future. And that's really the reason why I chose AI as a broad area to work in. But then, of course, there was also an important necessity of also finding the right faculty advisor. So I was very lucky that my faculty advisor was Lofty Zade. He unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. But he was a huge name in the whole area of AI broadly defined. And so he agreed to take me as his graduate student. So I was very happy to work under him. Great. Thanks. And how did we get here? You started to talk a little bit about the evolution, a little bit of AI from when you first started in the 80s and then comparing it to today. Now it's all the rage, all the hype. What are some of the differences that you see between how we thought about AI and its application in the 80s and then AI and its application today? No, I think what has happened, you know, is that the whole perception and the views of technology have changed so much in business. It's difficult to imagine, but you know, looking back, when I started my career in a business school, and I, I, my first job was in '89 at NCR. You know, I was a fresh minted PhD, 26 years old, starting to teach in the MBA program at NCR. Technology was seen very much as a support, non-strategic role in business, and you know, it wasn't seen as strategic in any sense. 
And I distinctly remember, you know, when I first offered a course on AI in my early, I think my first year, I had like eight or nine students. I remember less than 10, you know, who took the class. Because even though there was a hype of, of AI in computer science, in business schools, you know, it was technology was not seen as strategic. So what has happened, of course, is that technology has evolved. The role of technology has changed dramatically, I think, in the last 20 years, especially. And of course, AI also has boomed along with that. AI went through, a, let's say, a downturn or a down cycle soon after the 90s, when a lot of the initial, let's say, hope and expectations with the knowledge-based systems did not really happen as they were supposed to happen. Now, in the last 10, 12 years, you know, what we are seeing is we are seeing a dramatic change in terms of how these kinds of uh, AI systems and also how a variety of technology applications are really taking on a strategic front seat role in organizations. So I think what we are seeing is a combination of both the AI technologies having become more mature and having access to much more data and computational capabilities. At the same time, we're also seeing the role of technology in general has become much more important in organizations. So it's a combination of both factors. Right. And I think we're all starting to not only just study it in business school a little bit more from the business perspective and all of its different applications, but it's had this rapid advancement, which is really both exciting and alarming. What should we be cognizant of as we go into studying AI and its application from a business perspective? Sooner, always make the point that we are truly now living in the vertical hockey stick part of the exponential curve. So if you, you know, we often say we're living in exponential times, but we don't always as human beings appreciate the difference between a linear world and exponential world. That's because as human beings, you know, we suffer from very traditional, normal human biases. For example, the anchoring bias, we're very anchored in just the recent past. Or we have confirmation biases, you know, where we just think in terms of just because of, you know, we've seen two data samples, that's what's going to happen in the future. So we have some natural biases that force us in a certain linear way of thinking. But technology is moving exponentially these days, and it's been happening for the last, I would say, 50 years or more. But in this last 10 years, we have really seen the exponential growth to be very, very high. And there's no signs that this exponential growth is slowing down. You know, just to give you a simple magnitude of difference between linear and exponential worlds, if you just take a simple linear series and you just take 30 steps, let's say one, two, three, four, you know, and let's say in 30 years you had to reach the number 30, and you take a very simple exponential series, let's say two to the power of one, two to the power of two, and you go on 30 years and you're at two to the power of 30, two to the power of 30 is a billion. That's 10 to the power of 9. And the difference between 10 to the power of 9 and 30 is the difference between the exponential world and the linear world. And that is really happening now every single year. So every single year, this exponential nature of what is possible is increasing. And that is, in my view, the biggest difference in terms of how it's and why it's important for business leaders and business students to be much more engrossed in how technology changing business. Because what was difficult maybe just five years ago, maybe easily possible today or in another five years. And so the pace of change is dramatic. And of course, some companies will benefit from it more than others. 
Yeah, and that ties perfectly into my next question of have there been any costs of this rapid advancement from a financial or a social or an environmental aspect? Like what are the main areas of concern that we should be worried about? That's an excellent question because what has happened now is we are realizing some of the negative side effects of technology, which we had not anticipated before. So just to give you a little bit of a retrospective look at how the views of technology have evolved, I recall in the second half of the 90s, when the internet started getting commercialized, we had all these wonderful stories of farmers in India checking prices, commodity prices in Chicago, and then deciding when to sell their crops. Fishermen in Malawi who were coordinating with mobile technology how to you know, avoid overfishing in the waters. And there were stories of how things would happen good, good for everyone. There was also a sense that I remember going to a conference of journalism and journalists were thinking, you know, like this is going to be the golden age of journalism where access to information is there for everyone. Everyone will be able to search for information and basically choose and find the right kind of judgments they'd like to make. Now, what has happened really is that that pendulum has swung from that hope and optimism to much more fear and some kind of, a, let's say, concern around technology. Today, if you read a lot of the news around technology, a lot of good things, of course, have happened that would not have been possible otherwise. But at the same time, you find a lot of concerns around cybersecurity threats, around privacy concerns, around the whole fake news, and can we even trust what we're reading? And we are seeing this today, you know, in the whole issue around the Ukraine-Russia conflict too, you know, can you in fact trust what kind of news can you trust in this area? And if you cannot trust or if the basic tenets of trust get at risk or get endangered in a society, that calls into question, you know, how we govern ourselves. Can democracy even work, you know, in a situation where more than 50% of the news you read on social media is fake news? Can democracy even work? when? Social media and the kind of information that is shared on that sometimes, unfortunately, creates all kinds of tensions and negative consequences society as a whole. So I think we have a need right now to rebalance the pendulum, if I can use that word or phrase, is that you know the pendulum was very heavily on the optimistic side. I think right now it is quite strongly on the negative concern side. And we have to basically balance the two. I think the challenge for technology leaders and business leaders is as we go forward, we have to be able to combine the good and the bad, combine all the great things technology at the same time, be aware of and also you know, be mindful that maybe some of the full impact of technology will not be fully understood easily and in a very short time span. Right, exactly. I want to still stay on this vein of topic, but move a little more into machine learning algorithms and another application of artificial intelligence. Learning algorithms have really had a significant positive impact, kind of what we started to talk about across various industries, such as the early detection of cancer or predicting who might default on loans or targeting consumers through selective advertising. I know I've definitely seen that a lot in my life. Do you think these sort of predictive algorithms are harmful and or helpful in an everyday life? And two, the second part of that is from a business perspective. The reality is that technology is becoming more intelligent. And as there's more data available, our digital footprint is becoming richer and richer. So as we're leaving digital traces of what we're doing online or other kinds of interactions, because with IoT, even the environment around us is becoming more intelligent. As we're interacting with the environment, we're leaving digital footprints and digital traces, 
And of course, there are companies that are collecting those kinds of valuable data, and they can use the data to predict various things of you know, what we do and what we might think about and what we might decide and so on. That ability to do predictive modeling actually is very high right now, because in machine learning, what we know from experimental data is that machines and machine learning algorithms can predict patterns in data much more accurately than human beings can. The examples of medical AI systems that analyze ECG, the heart ECG patterns, and the examples where the doctor cannot find a problem with the ECG pattern, but the AI system actually finds a problem with the ECG pattern. And guess what? The AI system is correct as opposed to the doctor. Human beings, we are not very good at analyzing and finding patterns in complex, messy data, like let's say data coming from in a large city environment or a large collection of traffic patterns in a city and so on. And AI and machine intelligence is actually quite good at finding and capturing these kinds of patterns. So the more that you can actually use machines for finding patterns in behavior, behavioral data or in other kinds of complex system data, I think you will find AI being used to predict some of these things much more accurately. Now, what is interesting is like before the example I talked about technology being on the positive and negative other side of the pendulum, the same technology can be used for both positive and negative sides. Other, other day I was reading an article which I found interesting. We hear of stories today, for example, of how machine learning is used to help discover new drugs. And that has been touted often because drug discovery is expensive for pharma companies and if they can reduce the cost of drug discovery, that's great. It's helpful for everyone. It benefits people. This example that I saw and I've read, they were using actually the trained neural network to discover malicious drugs. It's actually bio drugs, you know, the bio weapons. And the AI system discovered many biological weapons in a very short span of time also. So you can direct technology towards both good and for bad. And so I think the challenge for us is to be able to use this knowledge that we're getting from all this rich data around us for the good of society, for the good of people. The adage of junk in and junk out also applies here, especially with algorithms. And we've actually seen the creation of biased algorithms simply just because the data of the algorithm is based off of is biased. Is there a way that we can solve this problem? I think the bias issue is a very important one because you know, often the biases are some things we cannot even recognize ourselves. We, are, you know, we grew up in a society and society has its biases, and we accept the biases you know, as just being normal. I remember one example, which was very interesting. In an AI experiment, they fed about 3.5 million books to an AI system. And they asked the system to identify what labels were being used in the books to, to associate with the major female lead and the major male lead in those books. And these are books written by leading authors in society around us. And it's very interesting if you look at the male and positive sort of aspects of the attributes that are used for them, it's very stereotypical, if you can say, you know, the female ones are obviously, you know, shown in one light and the male ones are shown in another light. And these are not biases that are discovered in the machine. They're basically biases that we reflect in our own behavior and writing. And the same story is there, for example, in the Amazon case, where you know, Amazon built a AI system to recruit employees. And the system was biased against gender and minorities. And they were a little surprised why that was happening. And then they realized that the data used to feed that was coming from their own internal hiring practices. So their own internal hiring practices before were biased, and they did not really realize it. 
So capturing these biases is not easy because often you do not see it. Yet at the same time, these biases are there. So we have to try and correct for them because if not, then we have systems that are being used today. For example, you have AI systems in the US being used by companies like Optum for deciding on the healthcare choices of more than 200 million Americans, which is like more than half the population. And in that situation, if the algorithm is biased as the case against minorities, it's a huge negative you know, impact in terms of societal good and also negative brand image for the, for the company. So we have to work on correcting these biases. And it's very hard to do so, especially because these biases evolve and change over time. They're not static. So I think we have to be constantly mindful of our biases. And on a good side, I think AI forces us to confront our biases much more explicitly. It's like Amazon was forced to confront its bias and its internal processes because the AI system made it more explicit. So I think that's a good side of it, but certainly AI by itself is not a panacea for bias removal in society as such. This might be putting you on the spot a little bit, but what advancements would you like to see as a future business leaders, especially coming out of a business school, what can we do to help the algorithms help us remove biases and mitigate the biases that we just so naturally are slaves to? Yeah, I think one thing is, you know, the best thing that business leaders can do really is get engaged with technology. And I really mean engaged, not in terms of signing off on budgets. That's how typically business leaders, you know, engage with technology, they sign off on budgets but really spend time trying to understand the issues. Because right now what is happening is technology is becoming so pervasive that it's no longer just a process operational issue that technology impacts. Technology impacts you know, social issues, ethical issues, moral issues, safety issues, other kinds of psychological issues inside companies. And we have to be able to have business leaders be aware of all these multifaceted, let's say, impact of technology in our business environments. And it's only by engaging with these issues, by trying to understand what are some of the implications of them, that we can start to start correcting for it. So I really don't think there's any other solution to this besides engagement and dialogue. I don't think leaving these issues to the technical colleagues is the solution. I think you need good technical people because obviously you need to have good architects who plumb the system and who design the plumbing and who actually manage the plumbing. But the broader business, the broader social implications of the technologies impacting business leaders is something very, very important. It has to be dealt with at the highest levels. And there's no solution out here because, you know, there's no easy solution because the technology is changing, evolving constantly. And the range of issues being touched upon is also changing constantly. So you have to basically spend time, engage, and then try to correct for some of these concerns as best as possible. You've played a very large role in setting up the Cornell Tech Campus on Roosevelt Island. And how can business schools evolve their curriculum to train more of a new generation of these managers, exactly what you're talking about, that are cognizant of these issues and are willing to study machine learning and artificial intelligence and really bake that into their everyday organizational practices? That's another excellent question. I to be very honest, one of the major reasons I joined Cornell in 2012 you know, was because of the Cornell Tech Project. I think for me, that was a fascinating example of how technology was going to be used to create something new in the heart of New York City. And I thought the fascinating opportunity for me to, in fact, engage with. And Cornell Tech really has been very, very innovative in many ways. The Cornell Tech program is not just focused on the digital MBA program. 
a digital economy, but is also a unique digital MBA program that is integrated in multiple ways with engineering, computer science, and so on. The students have a very unique curriculum. And I think it's examples like this that allow us to innovate, to create those kinds of examples we can learn from. And I'm very happy that the MBA program in Ithaca also has learned some of these aspects. For example, you have now a digital immersion. The digital immersion, which is very successful, wasn't there before. So that was actually inspired by what happened in Cornell Tech. But could we have done more? Can we do more? The answer certainly is yes. You know, I would certainly like, in the ideal situation, to be more integration between the MBA programs in Ithaca and Cornell Tech. I don't think so we integrate the programs adequately. I think I would love more of our students in Ithaca to spend more time and understand some of the current issues in digital economy that are being addressed in Cornell Tech. And I think Ithaca is a wonderful environment, there's a great campus, there's a great you know, university out here. But then again, you have another great opportunity out there in New York City with Cornell Tech and the whole digital MBA program. So I think the more connections we can build across these two programs, I think the better is for students on both sides, better is the university in both dimensions. Exactly. The more opportunities that we have to engage, then the more that we will actually <laughs> engage. So thank you for creating that opportunity for us here at Cornell. I know that was something that for me at least was another important deciding factor of coming here <laughs> two years ago. Before we wrap up though, I do want to shift a little bit into another area of your expertise. So in addition to AI and machine learning, you're also a co-editor and author of the Global Innovation Index. Could you give a little bit of background on what the Global Innovation Index is and what its goals are for those that may not be familiar? You know, I'm very proud, actually, and happy with the impact the Global Innovation Index has had on the world around us. Today is used widely, so it's adopted by the United Nations, used widely in more than 150 countries around the world, actually it's had a very strong impact on influencing the innovation policies around the world. It all started actually maybe about 20 years ago when I was visiting and working with different groups in different emerging markets. And I found that there were a lot of innovation happening in emerging markets, but it wasn't getting captured in a lot of the metrics that were being used because the metrics being used for innovation were fairly traditional science and technology metrics like number of patents, the number of publications, the number of PhDs, and so on. These are all very important metrics, but the reality of what we know today is that you know innovation can happen from everyone. You don't need a PhD for innovation. You don't need a patent for innovation. And a good example of this is Silicon Valley is highly innovative, but Silicon Valley doesn't patent as much as some other parts of the world. Partly because software, you don't patent as much as software as you do in some other the hardware-oriented disciplines. But the reality is innovation had become broader and more sort of widespread society. So I thought there was a need to build a model of innovation that reflected some of this broad-based nature of innovation. And that's the reason why I created this model in 2007. I was very happy in 2011 when WIPO, which is the UN Agency on Patenting and Innovation, they adopted the model as official model. And since then, of course, the Global Innovation Index, as I said earlier, has been used extensively around the world. So today it's a very good metric, a benchmark for countries to evaluate how good they're doing, to identify the strengths, weaknesses, to identify how they compare with other countries, and to also formulate some appropriate innovation policies in their own economic areas. The most recent index was actually published in September of 2021 and, and showed the effect that the pandemic had on global innovation, not to spoil the whole report, but innovation actually increased during the pandemic. Was this a surprise to you at all? Yeah, it was a surprise, but a pleasant surprise. And so when the pandemic started, of course, all of us were very concerned about what's going to happen in the world. There was a high unemployment, a lot of concern about 
how the pandemic would evolve. You know, we didn't know exactly what the contours of the pandemic would be like. Looking back now, it actually has provided a stimulus for innovation in most countries. Because what you find right now is that most countries now are much more willing to spend time and money in innovation. Some sectors like healthcare have seen tremendous investment innovation. Of course, we saw digital, everything digital, everything IT-related, communication-related has got also tremendous boost in innovation. But also you're seeing sectors that suffered, let's say hospitality, or even initially the automobile sector. I think are now realizing the future lies in innovation. We have to innovate further in these sectors. Otherwise, we will not be able to create the new future. And that's the challenge of innovation is that sometimes you need these tipping points. And the tipping point creates this groundswell of movement and action in some direction. Unfortunately, the tipping point in the energy has come very clearly with this Ukraine-Russia conflict, for example. You know, now people realize we have to move towards renewables. In some sense, it's going to be even stronger push towards renewables, not just because of climate, but also because of the whole supply demand situation that we're facing right now. So I think, the, I think we are very happy to see that innovation hasn't suffered. In fact, innovation actually has become strengthened in many areas. Some areas still need to work more, but I think on the whole, what we're seeing is that innovation is strong and all the signs are that innovation will continue strong in the coming years. And that bodes well, I guess I would say, for a lot of the different countries. And some of the thing you kind of touched on a little bit of, there are some countries that are innovating a little bit faster than others. How can the top innovative countries help those lagging behind? Or how can a country become a top innovator? I think there's an interesting question because what we have seen is that to become an innovative nation, you need to work on multiple fronts. So it's you have to have good human capital, good universities, good market conditions, you know, good business conditions, good environment, regulatory environment. So it's like you know links in a chain. All the links have to be strong. If you don't have you know even one link, if it's weak, it breaks innovation whole cycle. The ecosystem breaks. You can have, for example, a lot of great people, but if the business environment is not a good one for creating startups and doing interesting things, you will not really succeed in innovation in that country. So what you find is that it's a complex, multifaceted phenomena. But what is important is you need to have a national priority on that area. So somehow the leadership of the country needs to understand that innovation is the best way to not just create economic value and be competitive, but also in a sense to create social value. Because I think a lot of young people want to also be given the freedom to create new things, to try and experiment with new business startup ideas and so on. So the strategic side is what I would like to emphasize as being very important. You need the top leadership of countries to be able to say, okay, this is important for us as a country and economy to progress Second, you need to basically work on multiple dimensions. That's the hard part because it's not easy. It's not just one dimension, it's a multiple dimensions. The more you succeed in doing that, the stronger your innovation ecosystem will become. So I really believe that it can be done. We have seen examples of countries in the last 20, 30 years that have actually moved up quite significantly in the innovation performance. And I think that's the best way to ensure that we're able to create a more let's say, wealthier society. You know, the challenge, of course, out here is that you're going to divide the results of innovation also more equally. And the inequity in some of the innovation system that we have is another big challenge we have to face. But having said this, without innovation, we don't even have any wealth to create in the first place. It all comes down to leadership of kind of what we were talking about earlier of how can you foster good environment as business leaders and thought leaders 
not only from algorithms, but to spreading the wealth and spreading the innovation across all countries as well. As a final question, this has been an incredible conversation so far. What advice would you give to the MBA class of 22 that that is about to graduate? That's an excellent question. And I think the first and the most important thing I would say is, no, I think you just have to be aware how lucky you are. And I mean that in the best sense of the word. You're lucky to have the privilege of having a great education at a great university, you know, Ivy League, Cornell. You're lucky to be born in, and at a time of history when there's so many opportunities. If you were 25 or 30, 30 years ago, you had far fewer opportunities. So I remember when I was 25, the world was much more smaller. There were fewer things you could choose amongst. And in general, today, you have the incredible luxury of being able to choose. Use this chance that you have for not just only, of course, doing good professionally and creating wealth, which is, I think, important, but also for somehow doing good and doing good for the world, which is very important. As we all know, we have serious climate issues right now facing us and your futures. Your children, for example, will face that much more acutely. But also, I think, doing good for others around us, because not everyone is as privileged as you are. When I was dean at Johnson, I used to always tell a very simple message to graduating students was that today we are living in a societal system which is in which capitalism is how you know, we manage society, manage work. And in the capitalist system, you as being business graduates, you will be leaders and managers in the system. And that system will give you direct responsibility over many thousands of people and indirect responsibility over many more thousands because of the, all the family members who are dependent on the people who work with you. As you take decisions, just be mindful that your decisions affect thousands of people. I know you'll have to take some tough decisions sometimes. It's not easy. But take them as responsibly as possible. And when you have to make tough decisions, do it with as much care as possible. So that's my only message to you is be responsible, be caring, but at the same time, be grateful for all the luck and privilege you have. And I wish you, everyone, all of you, you know, the very best in your professional lives, personal lives. And I hope to you know, see you all successful and happy and prospering in the years ahead. We appreciate it. That's great advice to live by and a great message as well. Professor Detta, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for being on the Present Value Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me and all the very best. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. I'm your host for this episode, Elizabeth Potts. This episode was produced by Sharari Pandit and Kanishk Bali. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kaylee Chi Pamongo. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.